Hello, John. Hi, Dan Benjamin. What's going on with you? How are you? Uh, I am fine. <clears throat> Anything exciting going on? Well, a lot, you know, so much going on. What do you got going on? Uh, no, no, there's nothing going on. I mean, there's a lot going on in my mind, but there's not a <laughs> lot going on in the world. In my world. There's yeah. a lot going on in the world. People are fighting wars, yelling at each other, dogs and cats sleeping together. Right. But I <laughs> am just, I'm just the calm center. Well, you're the calm center for all of us, I think. We all kind of rely on you for that. You do seem like a calm person, and we've talked about this a little bit, that externally you seem very calm and very relaxed, but internally apparently there's a seething, boiling intensity. Mm, I don't know, seething. Well, yeah, maybe seething is actually <laughs> probably not far off. Seething um, implies a- anger, and maybe so maybe it's not. It's just tumultuous. Tumultuous. That's a great. All that's right. a great word. We'll go with that. You know, this is. Uh, I think about this all the time, uh, um, in the sense that, uh, you know, as as um, as the last twenty years, twenty thirty years have unfolded, we've kind of we uh, we've decided that it's not okay for people to live in the closet. For instance, right? right? You don't want to live in the closet because you're not revealing who you really are to the world and you're not, um, and in particular, we think of people being in the closet as being sort of, uh, they're lying to themselves. Right. And also typically, or at least the bad examples are people who outwardly work against their own nature. The, the example being the Republican congressman who's secretly gay mm. and who consistently votes against gay rights. And so we think about being closeted as being this, you know, this condition that we want to, we want to liberate people from, bring them out into the light. But there are a lot of us who prefer to keep some portion of our lives in shadow, mm-hmm. which is very different from being in a, in a closet, but in shadow a lot. I mean, I think a lot of people who think they know me, a lot of people who, who, um, know me well, don't know everything about me, don't, for instance, know everything about my orientations, let's say. Right. And those aren't things that I prefer to advertise about myself. But there's a certain aspect of that that's simply, these are things that I do that affect nobody else except me and the other people directly involved. Exactly. And then there's the whole world of like... uh, you know, of things that it, that everybody sees, like burning trash in your front yard versus what you do in the privacy of your own home that doesn't really affect anyone. Yes, if you are burning trash in your front yard, your neighbors at least, and right. the city have, have some vested interest in it. But as long as you support equal rights for all people, as long as you aren't, as long as you aren't in public uh, behaving in a way that invites people scrutiny right. right if you're out there saying certain certain groups of people don't deserve equal protection under the law that invites scrutiny of your of your private life sure but as long as you are saying i support equal rights for all people including myself then what you know what happens uh within within the realm of your private consenting world 
is really nobody's business. And it's right. not, and, and we don't think about that anymore because we're so passionate about, we've had such great success in shining the light on certain people and, and it feels, and there are a lot of people who were living previously and even now living in, in, in ways where they felt artificially constrained by, by society. And then they were able to be free, liberated and, and demonstrative. And that felt like a liberation to them, but it would not be a liberation for me. It would be incredibly intrusive and incredibly like, and not for, not, not because I'm embarrassed, but because it's nobody's business. And so that kind of world, and that's true across a, a great spectrum of, of, my life and, and 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 a lot of people's lives where it's just like there's a lot of there's a lot of who i am that i that i put out for public consumption and then there's a lot that i do not and that's my the and i know where that line is and i'm not i'm not being forced uh, to draw that line by by the law or by convention but it is like a very definite choice you know, it's funny that you mentioned this topic because I think yesterday and today both I was kind of thinking about for some reason maybe I was, you know, picking up picking up your vibe. Mm, picking uh, up what I was laying down. Yeah, but it, just the idea of people how much of the things that that we do in a day that we tell other people and how many things we do in a day where we tell people nothing. Mm. And you know, there's that feeling of like, well, it, if I don't tell it to significant other, then it's like it didn't happen. But, <laughs> you know, I find that that what we define as something important, it changes, you know, throughout our life. Like, is it is it really important that I tell such and such a person what I ate for breakfast? Well, probably, probably not. <laughs> but it's making those kinds of decisions, I think, that are so interesting is, you know, there's there's some people that very share very little about themselves and there's other people who are very comfortable sharing everything about themselves and where people draw that line and why they draw those lines it seems fascinating to me and you know I, w what i was really thinking about is that when is it that you're when are you sort of obligated to share things like you're saying like you the people who think that they know you and know, have known you for years if they found out about this one thing that you did I doubt it would change their opinion, but it might be in that category of, well, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And some people are very comfortable sort of keeping things just to themselves, like they keep to themselves. I, you know where I think this came from is I was reading, there was a, a TV show on, and I think the name of the show is Vice. I've never seen the show before. But they, is, it, uh, is it like a magazine, like Vice magazine TV show? I'm guessing that it is because that's the only other place I've heard of Vice. And they had President Obama going to a uh, to a prison and speaking to the inmates about uh, recidivism and things like that when it comes to nonviolent drug arrests and how many people are incarcerated in this country, things like that, those types of issues. And... It was a fascinating show, and I think after watching the show, I was starting to read more about, you know, what how we see prison portrayed on TV shows and in movies, and if that's actually accurate. You know, the popularity of uh, Orange Is the New Black, for example, whether that those types of shows are accurate or not. And one of the overriding themes that I saw across all of these is like, yes, these terrible things that you hear about can happen in prison, but Generally speaking, like if you keep to yourself and do your own thing, 
I keep hearing that same phrase over and over again, keep to yourself. Like if you keep to yourself, then these, these things typically won't happen to you so much. These, you know, you won't be involved in these kinds of fights or you won't be involved in this, that, and the other thing. And like, that doesn't mean that something still might not happen to you, but speaking generally that like keep to yourself. And it, it occurred to me that how much of what people do is, is sharing. And like the whole theme of, you know, 2005 and beyond, I guess, has been share, 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 share everything, share every moment on Instagram, share every moment on Twitter. You know, it, it used to be like, if you wanted to tell someone something, when you saw them in person, the next time you would tell them. And now if you don't fill your stream with interesting photos and tweets, like, what are you doing? Right. <clears throat> I, I always try to be uh, as forthcoming as I can about what I'm thinking about, about the, you know, the world of, the world of ideas that I'm sort of considering. But, but <clears throat> not at all really forthcoming about my, um, about, about certain aspects of my nature. Like what? And, well, that's an example of a thing that I wouldn't necessarily be forthcoming about. But I mean, like, uh, be, be for, is it simply that you feel the world is not ready to hear about this oh. or that knowing, <clears throat> knowing it about you would change the perception in a way that you could never recover from? Or is it simply this is a private thing that you don't want anyone else to know? And then why don't you want them to know it? You know, I think a lot, a lot of, a lot of what motivates people to, like, th there are people in the world about whom, and, and people in my own circle, but but also people in the larger world that I don't know personally, where I know a lot about what they like to do in the bedroom, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because they have because they have decided that what they like to do in the bedroom is a big part of their identity, right? And some. What that somewhat this card has been forced by all the people in the world who want to judge you on what you do in the bedroom mm -hmm. and don't don't want to judge you on any other criteria, right. and they want to make it against the law to do what you want to do in the bedroom. And so the the response to that, the resistance to that, has been, uh, you know, for the last twenty or thirty years, to say, "Here's what I like to do in the bedroom, and that's okay, and leave me the fuck alone, and I have a right to." Right, and that you know, and that has been that has been necessary, and I think good for for us socially and societally. Um, but there are a lot of people now about whom I know in in great detail what they like to do in the bedroom. I don't know anything about what they think about stuff um, that hasn't been their focus or maybe, maybe that's the stuff that they would never let you know, you know, what their, um, what their opinions about politics or what their thoughts about um, ideas are. Yeah. Just, you know, just like they're not, uh, they practice that, that kind of reticence where, um, the, the old shut up and play your songs kind of reticence mm -hmm. where it's like, if I, if I 
talk about politics publicly or I talk about my, or if I, if I consider ideas, um, sort of freely without knowing exactly what I think about them. If I, if I think out loud, I'm going to be really in danger. People might yell at me. People might hate me for, for positing an idea that I hadn't thought all the way through and thinking about it out loud. Oh yeah. And so I'm never going to do that, (laughs) but I will tell you all about, you know, what I, I tell you about like, an incredibly intimate aspect of my life because it's part of my liberation or it's part of my responsibility or it's what I like to do. I like to talk about that. And, uh, you know, then there are lots of us, uh, who are willing to consider ideas out loud and suffer the, suffer the fury of people who don't like to hear ideas uh, toyed with. But, you know, what we like to do at home or who we are, you know, as like intimate people where we find succor, uh, those are things that, that it isn't even a question of being comfortable. It's a question of, I mean, I'm just, I couldn't be less interested in people knowing about it because I don't want to, it's not a topic of conversation. Right. I don't want somebody to walk up to me and say, so (laughs) you and I both like uh, to put gummy bears in our urethras. (laughs) And I'd be like, "Hmm, great. I'm (laughs) super glad that we're having this conversation now. It's not a thing that I want to. And, and, and I think the difference is, uh, or, or, or one thing is that I don't normally care. It doesn't bother me when people presume things about me, right? People presume that I'm straight. People presume that I'm, uh, more, more or less regular, you know, and people presume that type of thing about one another all the time. Yeah. The, the internet is full of presumption where and and particularly people who are extremely out about their peccadilloes (laughs) the first thing that they presume is that other people that aren't out about their peccadilloes have none have no peccadilloes right right if you aren't if you aren't wearing a ball gag in your profile pic then you're you're not into that at all right then you're just having vanilla sex with your eyes closed and a sheet over you <laughs> with a hole cut in it. Right. right. For procreation and, purposes only. That's right. And you have no sense of, you have no intimacy. Uh, you know, you, you're living a lie or you're, you're trapped in a prison or whatever. And you're not hip to or down with, or maybe like deeply invested in the, you know, sex as a as a form of communica- human communication or sex as a as a liberation theology you know your uh that presumption is is sort of it's easy for people to make because there are so many people out there wearing bat costumes mm-hmm. while they have sex and 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 that's their primary um you know that's their the the front page of their website right so if you're not doing that, then well, of course you must just be a, 
a repressed Catholic. And I'm not uncomfortable with that presumption being made about me because, again, it's nobody's business. I don't care. It doesn't affect my... I mean, I, I, I'm often in a situation where a young person in a bat costume is making, is, you know, subtly casting aspersions about me in some public um, situation just because 22-year-olds make that mistake all the time. The 22-year-olds often mistake the fact that because they just discovered something, they're the first people that ever discovered it. Right. And so... And 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 that's the form that conversation often takes, where somebody's like, "Well, since I'm the only person in the room that has ever had a gummy bear in his urethra, I guess I can say that this whole <laughs> this is a pretty square party." And you know, and you say that to a room full of people that you don't know, and that's on you. That's you know, you, you, your ignorance is your problem, and it isn't. And that, I've been to a lot of parties where a bunch of really straight-looking people had to kind of go, hmm, to somebody, you know, somebody standing on the coffee table making a proclamation about how queer they were or how uh, far out they were. And it turned out that there were a lot of people in the room that were pretty far out and not, but, you know, straight acting. And that's not a, I know there are, there are plenty of people in the world that, that just couldn't bear to have that presumption made about them where they didn't correct that that misconception you know vocally and immediately like you you don't know me that kind of right right you don't know my life but there are lots and lots of people that don't feel the need to to stand up and say you don't know me they are content to not be known in that way so so that's a you know that we 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 are in a transition period in society right now where where we are it's where we're in a very voyeuristic era and and a very um exhibitionist era but there are a lot of us whose nature is to not be exhibitionist and uh, and we will and we are we will be a constant friend right we're never there are, there's always going to be 10% of the people that just do not want to be to do not want to show off in that way and and as time goes on you know it may it may be um that society comes back around and starts to recognize that that just because you're not waving a flag doesn't mean that you're not a member of that nation or whatever, or, or maybe not. Maybe it's an, maybe we're just headed down an a, uh, inexorable spiral where we're become an exhibitionist culture and, and in inhibitionists uh, have to go live separately somewhere in the South of France, hopefully. Well, I know lots of people that don't enjoy Sharing, I mean, and especially when it comes to things like Twitter and Facebook and even just the sharing. And I remember my wife was having this conversation when she first got on Facebook, which wasn't that long ago. And she, you know, immediately upon going on it, all, all of her friends found her. And, uh, and I remember she was like looking at it. And after like a day of looking at it, she came, she's like, why do, why do people do this? And I said, what, read it or post on it? She's like, no, she's like, like posting. She's like, 
my friend posted like two pages worth of writing about you know the this new kind of silverware that she's shopping for and my other friend talked for 20 minutes about how at first when she woke up she felt like a she might have a cold and then an hour later she didn't feel like she had a cold but then at the end of the day she did have a cold <laughs> you know and 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 she's like why why do people feel the need to share all of this information but share it in a way that's that's public share it in a way that is uh, that is is so much not just is, is for the whole world in many cases. And another one of my friends, uh, her sister is r- a recent college graduate, and we were talking about the way that she shares her information uh, and pictures and things like that on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And it's very clear by the way that she tweets or by the way that she you know annotates a photo that she shared that this photo or tweet or the information itself is so specific to such a small specific group of people because in her mind she knows well only 18 people follow me or only 50 people follow me or whatever that number is and to her she knows all of those people who are reading it know all of the other people who will be reading it and so it's not like it's inside jokes per se but it's something that's so specific about, you know, what they did last Tuesday when they were at Applebee's that, you know, these funny little inside jokes that to the external world have at, beyond no meaning. They have no meaning at all. You know, you can't you, – you never understand it. And if she were to take the 10 minutes to explain it to you, you'd be like, oh, so this is something funny that happened to you a month ago at a restaurant near near your college. Neat. But at the same time, people are always trying to like build their follower base. They want more followers. They want more attention, even if I don't think they're like, they know why they want it. They just know they want it, but they have to, you know, they have to tweet in a way that is accessible to the masses. You know, you have to, you have to, to post pictures that will be interesting to the masses. You know, if all you're doing is posting pictures of your cat then the people who know you and know your cat or like your cat or like cats, that's going to be your audience, but you're kind of limiting it. And this kind of goes in a different direction from what you were saying in that, like you're talking about sharing personal information with people, but what, did you mean that like in a public way, like in the way that she's sharing that information, like on Twitter or, or do you mean in personal conversation when you're talking about this sharing? Oh, I'm talking about the, about uh like on stage no pre-internet i mean i'm talking about there are people that have known me for a long time that uh, we don't even know each other on the internet and they still don't know everything about me because it's none of their beeswax but but the thing that you're describing you know it was in the in the and I, I've, I've talked about this before in the era that we grew up it became it was it was sort of a um it was sort of a hippie adage, but it's also, it's been, it's a, it's a thread that's been running through the 20th century, throughout the 20th century. The idea that, you know, that we're all artists and that the, that we need to, that we just need to be liberated from convention so that our artistic natures can blossom. And when that happens, we will be, you know, by by releasing your true inner artist, you'll be freed from all of these restrictive covenants. Oh, right. You won't you won't be 
repressed anymore and and the and the assumption and the or the rather the theory is that the reason that we are warlike the reason that we are re- repressive the reason that we are violent is that our natures are repressed by a you know um by conformity and by by fear and if we're if we're free of those things and we can free ourselves through art then what will follow is a is a more enlightened civilization people will be able to express themselves freely and then they will be kinder and we will be we will govern through love and so that was the that was the utopian idea mm-hmm. and the notion that everyone was an artist was one of those sort of leftist theories that you couldn't disprove right mm-hmm. you can put you can put a paintbrush in an elephant's trunk and the elephant will make art and so <laughs> you can i mean you put a crayon in somebody's hands and they scribble on a page you put you assemble 10 art critics and have them look at it six of them are going to say that it's a great work or mm-hmm. it's a or it's an an interesting work a, a compelling work um but what happened was somewhere particularly in the digital age the um the digital companies, especially and particularly Apple, realized that perpetuating the idea that everyone was an artist was a tremendous way to sell Apple computers because Apple computers are pre-bundled with all this art-making equipment, you know, high-powered art-making equipment. You can make films, you can make uh, digital art, you can make music, I mean, you can publish your novel online and all of the things, all of the restrictive uh, portals between people and, and uh, dissemination of their art have been removed by Apple largely and by and uh, Apple, you know, spearheading the movement and then the rest of the internet following behind. And so, that's a, been a brilliant ploy for them. And we've put these tools in everybody's hands and said, go forth, release your inner artist. And maybe your art is to take pictures of your dog every day right. and put them on Instagram. And that's not bad. There's nothing wrong with it. And it isn't bad. There isn't anything wrong with it. I, I, I follow several people on Instagram that honest to God, post pictures of their German shepherd every damn day, multiple pictures. And you know, and that that's that they're my friend and it's my choice whether or not I follow them. And I'm capable of scrolling past their German shepherd pictures. And I know that posting those German German shepherd pictures gives them great joy. And why would I deny them that? Um, but so what we have now, we are, we are somewhat living in a world where we are at peak art. Um, everybody is sharing their art all the time. And, but we, we still have the problem that uh, we, we still have the problem of filtering through all that stuff to find the stuff that's good. And in the past, it was difficult enough to disseminate art that there were, that it was profitable for large groups of people to put themselves in that position 
and have a building in New York City where dozens of people were reading manuscripts all day long to find the good ones and put them out. And they had, they had their own preconceived notions about what was good. And I'm sure some great manuscripts didn't get put out because the people in that building in New York City didn't have the imagination or couldn't um, comprehend what they were reading. But there were probably far fewer of those that didn't make it through than, you know, than, uh, than maybe the benefit to us all that we accrued from them, from that group of people being professional readers and then saying, here are some really good books and everybody should read these. You know, that's the old model. And the new model is it's all out there and, and there are, and also that, that reading, that critical reading is distributed among tens of thousands of people. So now you have 4,000 websites where people are like, this is the good book. No, this is the good book. This is the good book. And they're in competition with each other to find the obscure good book. And all of that uh, offers a tremendous opportunity for people that wouldn't have formerly had their voices heard. But the vast majority of those people are not actually good artists or are, are not actually making great work. And that, and I personally don't object to it. Um, and I, I know a lot of people get mad about it, but like if you just took all the Instagram feeds that were just people's pets, like that doesn't hurt anything. It doesn't take any more electricity Mm -hmm. and it, and, and it's really like up to you to follow them or not follow them. But the, but the challenge of, um, that there isn't then a second internet where only the good stuff is. And that's the, uh, that's what's so, so challenging, I guess, is that every time you turn on the internet, it's just undifferentiated. And all you can tell is, you know, like Louis CK has 2 million or 20 million or however many followers. So you go, Oh, I guess that's a vote in his favor, but one direction has even more followers. So just follower count isn't enough to know quality, just like sales figures wasn't enough to know quality. And so how are, how are you able to find, how, how are you, you know, every person now is individually responsible to nose through this trash heap trying to find the truffles. And that's a lot of work for people. It's a lot of work for me to try and find the truffles. Even, even if you're just reading aggregator sites where people are claiming to have found the 10 best things, there are thousands of those. To right, 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 right. And, um, and as, a, as a content creator, it's hard because you, you, know, you make your work and you're like, I'm going to go online and I'm going to share it with everybody. And then you turn on your computer and your whole Twitter feed is full of people saying, look at my new work. And particularly the i mean the ones that you know and you you already know what their work quality is more or less you kind of say oh i'll i'll give that a try but i mean there are so many people in my feed that i i know and i like their twitter feed and right. i'm even personal friends with them but when they say go on and support my new project right i just don't 
I don't know if I have the bandwidth to, I, de- I definitely don't have the bandwidth to go absorb all of those pitches and, and sample all that work. And as an artist, I, I'm often, um, I mean, I have to confront the fact that in a prior model, right, if I were a guitar player and songwriter in the 60s, my work probably wouldn't have made it like it was it was and is to um like the payoff the reward of my art is uh, uh, you know requires more investment from the listener and mm. is more obtuse and difficult to access than would have passed muster with a Brill building style songwriting standard or a, you know, in a world where there were only five record labels or even 15 record labels, there were plenty of singer songwriters in the sixties and seventies who tried, even did get a record contract, put that record out. It flopped. And that was sort of the end. I mean, Nick Drake being a classic example of somebody that he didn't really sell any records. Nobody really dug that stuff except for a, a very small audience at the time and there were and nick drake was a genius think yeah, about yeah. the think about the tens of thousands of artists who weren't geniuses uh my, and my i and i include myself in that group but who have art to make and so when i when i you know imagine that world um i don't think i would have penetrated through that in a way that I was able to later in the in the 90s and the 2000s where where the restriction had, was loosened a little bit there were independent record labels there were you know there were it was possible to make a living as a independent musician and and now those restrict now there are no restrictions or you know I mean, there obviously are, but, um, and, and somehow the, you know, like good music obviously keeps finding its way to the surface and good writing does too. Let me tell you about our first sponsor. It's Pond5. If you're producing content online, there's no better creative resource than Pond5. From video clips and motion graphics templates to music and sound effects, Pond5 has all the amazing media you need to perfect your creative productions without exhausting your budget or your time. They support their global community of artists with some of the highest payouts in the industry. So when you buy something from Pond5, know that you're supporting independent people all around the world creating this great content. Pond5 provides royalty-free license to you and lets you use your media wherever and whenever you need it. It's fast and affordable, even more so with our exclusive code 25% off your next purchase. Just visit Pond5, and that's P-O-N-D and the number 5, Pond5.com, and enter the code ROADWORK, one word, ROADWORK, at checkout. You'll save money and time. Go check them out, Pond5.com. It seems like there are two very large buckets of stuff that that comes out and that is uh or maybe three but one of the big buckets is stuff that's actually good 
And the second bucket is stuff that people somewhere that they, the, the universal they have decided is good and that we should see. And then third is everything else. So like there's this movie coming out today called The Martian, which is based on uh, a novel of the same name. Everybody that I know who has read it or already seen the movie tells me the book is amazing and the movie is great and that you should read the book and that you should see the movie. And somehow it is sur- this surface, this book surfaced. It came out and people liked it and they liked it enough to make a movie out of it. But there are lots of books that are great that not a lot of people have read and for some reason didn't catch on the way The Martian caught on. But it's not something that's easy to quantify or explain as to why that happened. I never understand why that happens. There's so many times I've seen people make something that I personally thought was really great. And I've seen other people also see it and also feel it was really great. But for some reason, it doesn't ever get picked up. It doesn't become that thing that gets into that bucket of they think it's great and they think we should see it. Because they're the ones that control that kind of thing. You know what I'm well, saying? I mean, except that and I, I, there's a certain amount of this that is, uh, that's at risk of, where I'm at risk of sounding like just old dude. But, you know, I think if you, if you take the top 100 songs of the 1970s, mm-hmm. And the top 100 songs of the 1980s. And, and when I was growing up, we considered the music of the 70s to be like ridiculously bad. <laughs> we, were, we were wrong. Right. But we were, you know, during the 80s, we really, and, and even into the early 90s, really felt like the 70s were just this ridiculous time. Um particularly like songwriting, just cheesy. Yeah. Um, and the eighties, even during the eighties, we considered, we considered it to be a ridiculous time full of cheesy music. Mm-hmm. But as the nineties progressed and into the two thousands, you know, we were reappraising the music of those times and realized that, Oh my God, the songwriting in the 1970s was at such a high level and a lot of that stuff that that we felt was cheesy was like brilliant like yeah. brilliantly good and it's not just nostalgia talking it, the 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 music um the production the songwriting the performances they're just at such a high level particularly relative to the songs that followed particularly relative to the songs that came in the nineties and in the two thousands. So if you take the top 100 songs of the 1970s and the top 100 songs of the 1980s and you compare them just, just on an objective sort of, if you, if you could feed those songs into a, and there, and there are actually are computer programs that judge the, the pop ability, the, the song mathematics of pop tunes compare those to the to the songs the top 100 songs of the 90s and the 2000s yeah there's a precipitous drop off in in quality i think 
Um, like, was there a year that you feel that happened? You know, it was, I feel like it was a gradual process as it became easier to release music, as there was more and more independent music and less and less uh, ability for people to, or I mean, le- less, less and less money thrown at the process. And I don't mean, I mean, there was more money in the late 90s in the music business than at ever any time before, but that money wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't concentrated like it was in the 60s and 70s and 80s where it's like, you know, Talk Talk gets to go into the studio and, and spend a year in there lighting candles and, and um, working on their seminal record. And even, you know, and Talk Talk is an example of a band that began the process of uh, some of their pop was pretty anti-pop. But like as time went on, for instance, uh, on a, on, in the entire Long Winter's catalog, like there's a lot of interesting music and a lot of pop music, but there's not a single song that you would pull out of, of those records and say like, well, here's a here's an AM radio hit. Here's a song that can go up against even like a lesser hit of 1975. Even a hit that was that you know went up the charts and made it made it to number nine on the <laughs> cash box and then <laughs> fell immediately away and was gone. Right. You know, um, because those songs were all. Music at that time was chasing after a platonic ideal of how do you get in and out in under three minutes and how do you, um, you know, like how good is your hook? How, I mean, it's, it was refined by a process of thousands and thousands of bands like the Long Winters, songwriters like me, who were clamoring at the door and being turned away. And so the ones that got through were people who had really, really either a, a native talent or, a, or had worked really hard to, to work you know, w- within the constraints of the form to make something as close to perfect as they could. And I was never restrained by that or constrained by that, right? I could make a, I could, the first song on my first record is six minutes long or whatever, and it mm-hmm. has no, um, and it's it's obtuse and it, and it it isn't trying to be it's trying to be catchy but not not on the first listen through one speaker in a car and mm-hmm. driving mm-hmm. it's trying to be catchy on your headphones when you're in an airplane coming in for a landing during a storm and those are very different target audiences and so so if music has gotten more interesting maybe and more diverse the peaks are so much shallower, you know? I mean, I don't, uh, and, and there are so many bands, like, I don't think that there's a single song by the national or by, um, I mean, I guess the white stripes have had a, or Jack white had a couple of tunes that would have qualified as AM radio hits, but not nearly commensurate with his status. Um, like LCD sound system. Oh yeah. They were, 
very celebrated band, a very popular band, but you would have to go you would have to go 80 songs deep into ABBA's catalog <laughs> to find a song <laughs> as dull as the best LCD sound system tune. You know, like it's and and they're arguably trying to do the same thing or 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 operating in the same vernacular. Yeah. And that's uh so yeah, I I there's nothing like the 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 great availability of art making tools to people and the great explosion of self-expression that we're living through. It doesn't really hurt anybody. It's it's wonderful and and it's uh maybe one version of it is that we're on our way to all being on a space barge like in that movie about the garbage robot. Wally. Thank you. And you know what what you didn't see on the uh, the humans that were up in the space barge all in their sweatpants with their giant sodas. What that what the what Wally didn't show was that all of those people were probably maintaining extensive blogs about themselves. <laughs> right. Yeah, we don't know much about their personal life. You know, that that's probably what they're doing. They're not just consuming, they're also creating <laughs> right. narratives about themselves because they're, I mean, there aren't that many of them. They're, somebody has to be making all that content. Um, so that's one version of it. It, it. it no longer feels like the artist is a, is a, um, the artist is a member of a priestly cast. Well, right, because there used to be, and I don't know if this changed in my lifetime or many years before it, but there, and, and maybe maybe it's still going on. Maybe you can tell me, because I think that at some point, like being an artist, a musician, an artist of some kind or another, that that was sort of, I, well, let me frame this a different way. I remember when I was a kid, my, my parents and my grandparents were obsessed, obsessed with what I would call sort of highbrow, uh, highbrow physical sports, highbrow sports. Let's call it that. Highbrow sports. Highbrow, okay. For example, tennis, golf, right. Right. Uh, the Olympics as a whole. Yeah. And sure. The, the, uh, the javelin. The javelin, perfect example, right? These are the kinds, of, but even tennis as a whole, like maybe it's different nowadays, but when I was a kid growing up in the seventies, like tennis wasn't necessarily like an inner city sport. You know, this is for people who spent a lot of time on country clubs and could afford to get lessons, one-on-one -on -one lessons and go to competitions and meets and things like that. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't something that you could just sort of be walking down the street and look and there's a playground and, you know, there are people one-on-one -on, -one on these huge, well-maintained tennis courts. It just doesn't happen. It but was a wasp sport. Very much a wasp sport. And I think that, that I was must have been the Olympics that I was watching. And I remember just being impressed by the athleticism of the the competitors out there and how how they were able to do these things that, you know, even when you're, when you're a kid, you don't realize how hard something is. You just assume like, 
you could do anything. And then when you're older, you realize like, wow, to be able to run that fast and not just trip, let alone actually, you know, be the fastest person in the world. And so that's a lot of work and a lot of talent. And, you know, but as a kid, this stuff was like, it was impressive because they were doing these things that were physically amazing, but I didn't really get the whole obsession and the interest that seemingly my, my whole family had in this. But then I found out that the people who were competing in my mind, like, they were defined by the fact that they were an Olympic athlete. Like if there was someone throwing the javelin, that that's what they did. They threw the javelin and somehow they were paid like the way celebrities in my mind were just paid. They were paid to be this thing and they didn't have a regular job. Like they didn't go to work and like practice throwing the javelin in the evenings and weekends. Their whole life was just throwing the javelin. They didn't have yeah, they to. They got their, their proportion of the javelin guild. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and they, they didn't get their little bag. Right. And like, um, you know, maybe they went to the store if they needed to buy something like they might do that, but they didn't, they weren't like uh, responsible for paying a mortgage on a home or something. And then I learned that, that they were, this was after the age that I learned that my teacher actually owned a home and might be married and, you know, did, did other things besides just live in the classroom. But it was that kind of, awareness of stuff that like, whoa, these people, this is, this is something that they're doing on top of the rest of their life. This is something that they're doing in addition to having a job or, and back to the way that, that I relate this to the musician or the artist or that kind of thing is that it always seemed to me. And I think still in my mind, like I just sort of assume that if I can buy someone's music that, that, that they are a professional artist. They are yes, exactly. They are a professional artist that they this is how they make their living. They're probably pretty well off if not super rich. And that not that they've got an easy life per se, but that once they've made it, you know, that now they've they've made it, they're there at the in this situation and things are now easy for them and they're you know, because I bought, how do I know? Well, I, their CD is in peaches. So like, of course, if their CD is in peaches, then, you know, then they've, then they've made it. Then they're, Wait, uh, are there still peaches in Austin, Texas? I don't know. I don't think so. Right. Last time but I saw you, peaches but, was South Florida or central Florida. But you, you suffer from this yourself where, where there are lots of people who think that because you run a podcast network, right. Uh, that, uh, and if your podcast is, is popular if it has if it generates hashtags <laughs> um that you are in that rarefied world of of a multi-million dollar podcast oh owners. yeah i mean jesse thorne goes to great lengths to dis disabuse people of that um by saying over and over again how poor he is right the rest of us like to keep it somewhat of a secret. Right. That pod podcasting isn't a giant moneymaker. Um, but the, you know, the fact that, that there is, there's always been a hobbyist class in, you know, in sports, in the arts, really in everything. Um, and that, 
you know, whatever that line is between being a hobbyist and being a professional is pretty blurred. Um, I mean, that's kind of the American way, right? The idea that there should be, you know, I mean, Eastern Europe throughout the 70s and 80s would send Olympians to the games who trained and were state-sponsored right. uh, super Olympians in the uh, Rocky Three model. <laughs> Right, where yeah. they, uh, I, I saw Rocky Three the other day. I don't know whether I was on an airplane or somehow it was playing in a way that uh, that I ended up sort of watching the second half of it. Right, and it was astonishing to me how much in the mid '80s, how much propaganda we were consuming that the Soviet Union was actually the technologically advanced superpower in the equation Mm -hmm. like the whole premise of that movie is that america is this gritty poor uh scrappy nation of of um you know guys from the jersey shore and the russians have all this technology and this this they are talking about you're talking about rocky four i'm sorry rocky rocky three was mr t rocky four was Uh, right rocky four is drago i always forget uh the chronology of the Rockies, <laughs> but uh, Rocky Four, right? And Drago is—you know—they've got all these flashing lights and supercomputers. Right. And he's hooked up and he's running around right. this track. Right. And Rocky himself is just working out with logs. <laughs> That's right. But you know, and it, and and it's hilarious to look at now when you realize that you know the Soviet Union was always just sort of stapling stuff together. Right. Uh, as best they could to hang on and um and we're never never really that much of a of a technological threat to the united states but it it does it does comport with our identity our self identity is like we don't we don't have state sponsored artists or athletes because in america you just fight your way by hook or by crook, you know, and you can be a, an amateur and then your real talent shines through, you know, this, we have this sense of ourselves as a meritocracy mm-hmm. and, and ultimately if you look at the Olympic medals throughout that period, you know, the fact that they, that the Eastern Bloc countries focused so much energy and so many resources you know, they produced the Nadia Comaneci's and they produced the the sort of famous East German weightlifters or whatever, but but the United States and our and our valiant nineteen eighty hockey team uh showed, you know, just what the power of amateurs can do. So it's un it's unclear whether at some point you do want to to test the limits of human ability. Yeah. And what's the, what's the best way to do that? What is the best way for us to achieve the greatest javelin throw of all time? And now, now that we are increasingly working with the, with an idea of the world as a single entity, a global kind of enterprise, how do we find the best ever javelin thrower and give them the best ever training and support 
so that they can throw that fucking javelin as far as is humanly possible. Right. And if we do, if we fall short of that, if it's, if we leave javelin to just the, you know, just the hobbyists and we don't get that, we don't achieve that javelin greatness. Then we're, then we are imagining that throwing the javelin performs another role that it isn't goal oriented. It's not about finding what the human can do, but it's about something else. It's, it bonds people together and, and, um, it's amateurness is its virtue that it was never about throwing the thing. It was always about the making of it and giving people, giving large numbers of people something to do with their time. Right. And, and, and I guess really that's a, that's a, that's a version of, of, um, I mean, that, that is a kind of church where really all of all of our endeavor is just for its own sake to give us something to do to 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 bide our time and it isn't really about moving the ball it's a it's a not mo- about moving the ball down the field it's about moving the ball around the field uh and i and, and i'm not i'm not sure about that i i i could be convinced of that that we're that what we what we imagine as progress is really just sort of what happens when a when a scrum kind of moves around a, a surface rather than like than a march but i'm not but i'm not sure if that i'm not sure if i was raised to be as proud of that compared compared with what Compared to the idea that we are trying to achieve ideals, uh. that we do imagine, that we do imagine within our limits, that we are trying to explore and and push those limits, and we're doing it intentionally. We're doing it; it's a directed effort in every direction to push our limits outward. Right, and it isn't just, it isn't just a. We don't accidentally push those limits outward when our when our real energy and our real um, objective is just to give the mass of people something to you know a maypole to dance around. Yeah, and every once in a while somebody breaks free, either because they're inspired or they're in, they're insane, <laughs> and they push some boundary out there, and we all go, "Wow." Our hero, hooray! And then we get back to dancing around our maypole. Or whether we're actually really explorers first. And, you know, and that's, that's a, a, maybe a shorthand for the tension of civilization because most of us are maypole dancers. We, we want to stay in the village and we want to fet ourselves and we want to have we don't want to be too far away from the turkey when it comes out of the oven. We want to be there and put flower boxes on the windowsills. And but don't you think? Don't you think that if 
without knowing all the details behind the scenes, don't you think that most people, if they were given the choice, if someone came to them and said, you could be a professional athlete instead of the, whatever this thing is that you're doing now, or you could be a, an, a professional artist instead of this thing that you're doing now, you could draw for a living. Don't you remember drawing when you were a kid? Didn't you love it? Wouldn't you like to just draw and get paid for that? You know, I think there's this, there's this myth that those kinds of creative endeavors are somehow better and more fulfilling, not just more fulfilling in the fact that I made something and someone liked it, but more fulfilling in the sense of like, I accomplished something big with my life. I think everyone has those kinds of aspirations at some point or another, maybe not everyone, but it seems like a lot of people, you know, if, if you ask any kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? More times than not, they, they'll pick the thing that brings them a lot of joy that they have a lot of fun doing, and they'll say that, or they'll pick something that seems almost supernatural in a way, right? And I've asked, uh, you know, my my kids this, and anytime that, like, I meet one of their little friends and we're, you know, going to a party or something, I'll say, well, you know, we'll talk for a little while, and if, and if there's a lull in the conversation, that's sort of my ace in the whole question. What do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, kids still say the same kinds of things that we said, you know, 30, 40 years ago, like astronaut, fireman, you know, cop, whatever. But I find that a lot of the answers I get are also like, I want to draw or I want to be a rock and roll singer or I want to be this, that and the other thing. It, it's part of that, of course, is because these are the things that they know, right? They watch TV and they see, oh, they're People, cool people do these things. Cool people, you know, are in movies in Hollywood and play in a band and go to the moon. Like those are the cool people. And they don't think to themselves, well, one day I want to be like a senior systems analyst too for a telecommunications company. Like that's yeah, never that, a goal really for anyone when reflects, they're kids. That reflects the values of their parents. You know, when, when we were growing up, there's not a single kid, and I can say this with utter confidence. There was not a single kid in my elementary school, junior high or high school. Well, wait a minute. No, that's not true. By high school, there were. But in my elementary school, there wasn't a single kid that said he wanted to be a rock star or a musician of any kind. Um, because our parents didn't fetishize rock stars. You know, in 1974, there were kids, I mean, there were plenty of kids in my elementary school who were members of Kiss Army <laughs> and liked Kiss, but they did not imagine that that was a, that a that lifestyle was a they could get. They could never achieve that. And, and, and no one's parent would have supported it. I mean, it right. was not a, no one said they, there were a couple of kids who wanted to be comic book artists. Yeah. I remember one kid in particular, a kid named Tony, who wanted to draw comic books in my grade school, but people wanted to be firemen because you can be a fireman. I don't remember anybody even wanting to be an astronaut. That just, uh, there was a girl in my junior high who wanted to be a fighter pilot. And she and I had many, many long conversations where we were, this is 1980, 81. And we were, uh, and I actually got her into the civil air patrol. So we were civil air patrol cadets together hmm. and she wanted to be a fighter pilot. And at that time, 1980-81, there, there was no inkling that a woman could ever be a fighter pilot. It was not 
on anybody's radar. Nobody was talking about it. Nobody was lobbying for it. It was just so far out of the realm of possibility. But she was convinced that she could do it. And it was the, it was her just absolute passion. And she, had, she was very science-minded and also was an optimist. And we would sit and talk about, because I wanted to be a pilot too, although not a fighter pilot. And I would say to her, you know, like, well, I think what you need to do is like get into like C-141s or whatever. At the, at the, it, was at the, it was at the dawn of like the possibility that women could be pilots in the Air Force, although right. not, you know, they were never going to fly the, the big, uh, the fast jets, but they could fly the big jets. And she was like, adamant, no, I do not want to fly C-141s. I want to fly F-15s. And I think about her all the time because she was just a little early. Like by the time, by the time she, it was still not an option for her. And by the time it was an option, she would have been too old to rotate into fighter planes. Um, and, you know, and like a great, it's kind of a great tragedy and one that I have a personal, a little bit of a personal connection to because I really supported her. She, more than anybody I ever knew, wanted her to be a fighter pilot, more than anybody. And, um, you know, and it was like, I didn't know anybody that wanted to do anything as much as she wanted to be a fighter pilot. But she was the outlier. Um, most people, I mean, do you know what, what I said when adults asked me that question? What? I said I wanted to be a lawyer. And I said I wanted to be a lawyer all the way through high school. And it was because in my family, lawyers were admired. And I wanted to be like my dad. But I also imagined that a lawyer, you know, a lawyer would have power in the world. A lawyer wouldn't be, uh, a lawyer could take care of his family. But also, Mm -hmm. you know, a lawyer could become a politician. A lawyer could could my dad would say things like this to me like a lawyer a lawyer can always you know you can always get a job in business and i was like do you are have you ever gotten a job in business he was like well no but (laughs) a a lawyer can and he had this idea that a lawyer was some sort of super super skill and once you were a lawyer you could do anything you wanted and the, the fact is i know dozens of lawyers now and not one of them feels like they can do whatever they want but but all by way of saying, like, the, the parents of kids, I mean, p- the parents' generation that's my age, yeah, we tell our kids all the time, you can be a rock star. And it's part of this rock star proliferation where everybody thinks they're a fucking rock star now. Mm-hmm. And not only has rock star ceased to mean anything, but, yeah, there are a lot of kids that have no business imagining that they should be rock stars thinking that that's what they want to do because their parents are like their parents equate that with freedom and they want their kids to be free and they want their kids to live fun fulfilling lives and so they push their kids into these rock programs for kids and (laughs) you know and they support their kids and uh, when they want to dye their hair pink and act like little rockers and you know, and they're and the and I see it all the time. These parents that are very, very proud, secure in the knowledge that their children aren't going to be constrained 
by middle-class values and their kids aren't going to be stuck working in an office. Their kids are going to be rock stars. But the reality is most of those kids with pink hair that are playing in bands when they're 15 are going to be systems analysis uh, analysts yeah. for software companies because those are actually where, where, where the jobs are. Well, when I think about this back in the early days of like what I wanted to be, I remember I really wanted to make movies. Like I wanted to be a movie director. Like that was, that's what I thought would be really, really cool. When you were seven or when you were 17? Uh, both. And writer was like, well, that'll be my fallback if I can't make that work. Yeah. And I remember going to this one kid's birthday party and his family his I forget what his dad did, but like they were rich they had the really great house in the, in the really, really high-end development. And one of the things that, I mean, he had all this birthday stuff, but I remember at one point, he, he and I'm trying to remember our age, let's say 10 years old, 9 or 10, he had made a movie. Now, what this really meant was like his dad and he made some kind of movie together but you know if you if you imagine this is maybe 1980 81 82 time period and very very few people had the ability to make any kind of movie at home the idea that you had a video camera of some kind in 1980 that was not typical a lot changed between 80 and 90 because by the time that I was graduating high school, I did have a video camera and it was a VHS shoulder mounted video camera that took full size VHS cassettes that I could just record and then pop right into the, into the VCR into the TV and watch it. I remember it well. And I found a really cool technique so that if you wanted to kind of do special effects on a budget, you could have people teleport by the, the, uh, the recorder that I had had a little pause button on it. So you, you could be standing there and you'd hold it and you'd hold very, very, very still while you're holding the camera, very still. And then you just hit the little pause button and then you'd have the person quickly run out of the frame and then you'd hit the unpause button. Oh, what a great effect. And they're just gone. Uh, You know what? I'm imagining it right now and it's still delights. It's wonderful. It's just the best thing ever. But you know, I was on my way, but I remember being a kid at 10 or younger and watching this video that this guy had made. And then we went down into their like home theater that they had again in the early eighties. This was not normal. Like this was really special. And I just remember for the first time in my life and one of the only times in my life feeling an emotion that you would identify as extreme, uh, not just jealousy, but unfairness of the world. Because here's this hack, and his idea, his film was crap. Oh, I bet it was. It was was the worst. There was no plot, no No. character development. Because his dad was helping him. It It was the worst movie I'd ever seen. And I knew I could make something much better, but I did not have the resources. And yet... He had yeah. the money. He had the camera. He had all of this stuff at his disposal. And this is the crap that he could churn out. It was the worst. Give me a camera, right? Like, I'll show you, I'll show you entertainment. And well, it was, anyway, it was, this is the kind of thing that really, like, that memory became the driving force for me for a very, very long time. And this, this frustrated feeling of like, Anything that I, if, if I want to do it, I have to, I have to go and earn it. Like still, I, I was growing up 
in uh, with, you know, we, we were never needed food. Like we were never like, where's the food going to come from kind of poor, but like we never had money, you know, I was never able to buy like really nice stuff until I started working. And that's why I started working at age 13 at Burger King. Like my own, I started working on my 13th birthday on that day. Yeah, that should be, I think that's illegal now. It is illegal now. But back then, I think you could work when you were 14, but if you were 13, your parents needed to sign the application or whatever. And my mom did sign it and drove me to work. And I mean, I I have had a job ever since I was 13 years old because I knew that like the only way that I could get a Nintendo was if I started working and saving for it. The only way that I would be able to pay for gas in the car that I would one day be able to afford would be if I, if I was earning the money to do that. Well, and, let me ask you a question. When you did finally get the video camera. Yeah. I, made, long, I made good stuff. Yeah. I bet it, I bet it was top shelf, <laughs> but like how long did it take before you, uh, before you said, I mean, Somewhere along the line, you abandoned the fantasy that you were going to be a filmmaker. And when did that happen? I mean, it it only got easier. The technology only got more and more available. So at a certain point, you must have realized that that killer nightmare realization, which is, oh, shit, this is harder than it looks. And, oh, it, my problem wasn't that I didn't have the technology. My problem was that this is really hard. Um, what, what, how did that happen? What was that process for you? Uh, well, I mean, if, if anything to this day, I still blame it on the fact that, you know, I didn't start early enough. Uh, and if I uh-huh. just had that camera, everything would be different now, but, uh-huh. uh, well, I'll tell you what happened. I was actually in film school. My major was film. I was at university of central Florida and like all good film students, you go to work at Disney. And I worked in the theme parks and I was dating a girl who worked in the haunted mansion, uh, which, you know, was ahead of its time. She was goth before we had a term for it. This is very sexy oh. uh, backstory. Yeah. And I was working and I didn't get a job in the magic kingdom itself. I got a job at uh, what we used to call MGM studios. I think it's called something else now. And they had like that because that was the park that was all about movies and like you could work there and kind of maybe learn stuff about movies. And I remember going to work there and I was working at uh, the the backstage studio tour and honey, I shrunk the kids and the Muppet vision 3d, which is now called 4d and all these other little attractions that were there. It was like the studio, you were like working on a studio and they called it a back lot and all this neat stuff. And I was so excited because I knew that like I was, I was, going to be doing this thing that I really wanted to do. And they even had come up with this specialization within the film program that was like computer animation, because one day it won't just be Tron. They'll actually be able to do stuff with computer animation and make, Mm -hmm. make movies with that Mm -hmm. technology. Mm -hmm. Once they figure animation, they'll figure it out. And, uh, I remember meeting people on the job who were many years older than me. And it was almost like became a joke. Like they were all film majors. I would ask them, what's your major? And they're like, oh, film. Oh, cool. Well, well you know, when did you graduate? Well, I graduated eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And they're working and making a couple bucks more than I was for part, <laughs> sometimes full-time jobs. 
working up toward manager of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, <laughs> which if you don't know what Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is, there's a movie called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids where kids are shrunken, if you hadn't guessed. And right. they have it, it, to. It stars, uh, it stars the, it stars Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis of Ghostbusters fame. Right. And he was the dad who shrunk the kids, I believe. Yeah. He shrank those kids. And, and the play, it's essentially a playground where the ground, the earth is sort of padded and there are giant plastic ants and other insects that the kids and little caves and things for the kids to run around as if they've been shrunken down in a large garden. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah, it's real fun in Central Florida heat, 100 degree heat, and you're wearing like khaki pants and a shirt and trying to get kids to not all climb on the ant at the same time. It's pretty horrible. But like that was part of what these film majors were doing. And I realized it was fairly discouraging to me because although I knew with, you know, absolute, absolute knowledge, the way that only someone in college can have, that I was you know, a better, I had better ideas and I would be a better director than all of these other people. Uh, but at the same time, I realized just how hard, like you're saying, just how hard or if not impossible, it would be to, to get out above the masses of other people to be able to do this thing. And that was, that was kind of what opened my eyes to the fact that, what you know i'm sure i'm good enough but what if what if i wouldn't be good enough or what if my talent would not be would not rise above for some reason and so did you start working on a contingency plan at that point or like at what point did you stop at what point did you uh did you take the fateful turn <laughs> where to switch majors <laughs> Well, or, I mean, I don't know. Did you switch majors or did you no, graduate with majors. a degree in film? Oh, no, you did? no, yeah, I switched majors. So you made a conscious decision. You were like, you know what, this, the, there's, there are a lot of bad outcomes uh, that are possible. The worst bad outcome being to graduate with a film degree and work at an amusement park. And so I'm going to what? What did you, what was plan B? Plan B for me was do the thing that I knew with certainty that I actually was exceptionally good at and had already been recognized for recognized in the sense of like I'd had, I'd, I'd written stuff that was published in one manner or another, or that people would read the things that I wrote and say, wow, this is really good. You should be a writer. And, uh, and, and also I always aced everything in high school and college that had to do with English. Uh, probably because my mom was an English professor, and I, I guess I genetically inherited that skill to to write fairly well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that also, I mean, in college, I was always looking for whatever would require me to do the very least amount of work possible. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. to say that I was lazy would give the impression that I laid around a lot, eating chips and watching movies and maybe getting baked, and none of that was true. That's absolutely furthest from the truth. My goal was to as quickly as possible become financially independent and out of school. That was my goal. That was always my goal. I wanted to be done with school. I did not like it. I wanted to be done with it. I wanted to be out from underneath everybody else's thumb so that I could decide what I wanted to do and I could live where I wanted to live 
And it, nothing was more important to me than being out of school and being financially independent because, you know, I, I needed to be able to make choices for myself. And that was the most important thing. And I said, you know what? I, I found out about this thing. I knew about this thing called technical writing because when I was, um, when I was a kid, my mom uh, married her second husband was an English professor like her. And as side projects, he did this thing called technical writing. And people would hire him to, and I think my mom did this a little bit, they would hire them to explain something technically in a way that was understandable to people who would be having to use that thing. And that they were able to be involved in what I realized was technology, which was something I always loved and was good at too, and especially computers, that I could do that, but that I could use this other skill that I had that came natural and easy to me, which is writing, I could, I could write about this stuff that I understood in a way that everyone would understand. And I thought that's, that's neat. And there was a tech writing major at my school. And I said, well, I ace English stuff. I'm exceptionally good at computers. I'm pretty good at writing too. That could be a career. Like I could get paid to do something that seemed relatively easy. And I knew people that were in that field. I said, yeah, I'll do that. You it's switched the- your major to technical writing. Yeah. You, you graduated from college with a degree in technical English, writing. English. Yeah. But with a English, but with a tech writing is the focus, I guess. Focus, yeah. yeah. Which meant I didn't have to. I still had to read uh, like Beowulf and Chaucer, but I didn't have to keep. You didn't have to understand. Them. <laughs> well said. Yes. And um, and so, when did you achieve financial independence? Before I graduated, I had a full time job offer making twenty one thousand dollars a year, maybe twenty one five. Right. Not uh, as, an insignificant amount of money at the time. Right. And uh, I was very excited. That was before I graduated. I went on the job interview. And uh, when I graduated, I had about $300 that I had saved. And that was it. I was ready to uh, to begin working mm-hmm. full time. So, I mean, within, you know, probably a month or, or so before I graduated, I had part time and I went full time. And he told me that if my boss, the VP of the company, told me that if I had good on-the-job performance and after my 90 days, that right. he would give me a bump to 25K. So I already had my eye on the prize. And on my on the 90th day, I went into his office and I sat down. I said, well, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> he said, yeah, what can I do for you? I said, well, you told me that after 90 days, uh, if I was still here, that I would get a... a a raise. And he's like, I think I did say that. I'm like, no, I know you said that. And he said, all right, there you go. Anything else you need? I was like, no, that sounds great. And that was wow. yeah, working ever since. $25,000 a year. Yeah. That was enough. That was, that was what it cost. Yeah. To, to, uh, to take Dan Benjamin's soul. That's right. That's all it cost. Still, that's about all it cost. We would like to say thank you to Wealthfront. Wealthfront makes it easy for anyone to get access to world-class long-term investment management. It's an online automated service that invests your money for you. You know you should be investing your money for the long-term, for your family's financial health, and you probably wondered, like, how do I do it? Trying to do it yourself, especially the right, like, academically proven way is complex and time-consuming, and, you know, maybe you thought about finding a professional. The thing is, 
most investors that work with traditional advisors get charged huge amounts, anywhere from one to 3% of what you've got under management, plus hidden fees for transactions and charges made to your account. These things add up very quickly and they eat into that money that you're trying to save. So whether you're investing for retirement or a different long-term goal, Wealthfront automatically rebalances your portfolio, reinvests your dividends, all commission-free, and you can see every trade that they make on your behalf in your dashboard anywhere you go, on your desktop or in your pocket with their mobile app. So go to Wealthfront.com slash 5 by 5 and that's just two words, Wealthfront.com slash 5 by 5 to see your free personalized investment portfolio. You'll see all the customized allocations they make. And here's a special for 5x5 listeners. If you sign up, they will manage your first $15,000 entirely free of charge for life. That means that in addition to never paying commissions or any hidden fees, you also won't pay any management fees to have that first $15,000 invested. Claim your offer today at wealthfront.com slash 5 by 5 I have to read this disclaimer now. Sorry about that, but here we go. For compliance purposes, I have to tell you that Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA, and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read the full disclosure. I was probably in my mid thirties before I ever made $25,000 in a year. Um, which is, which I think back on and marvel at marvel at that it took you that long or marvel that you made that much money. I mean, I I remember the first time I made 900 bucks in a month and feeling like, I was kind of sitting pretty high, 900 bucks a month. Um, that's like... It's a lot of money. You know, my rent was 350 bucks a month. Right. What would you do with all that? And like when I was making twenty one five, I couldn't, I, I was like uh, the kingpin. Like I couldn't, I couldn't spend it all, you know, like I didn't know what to do with that. It was crazy. Well, yeah. I mean, I, because I didn't have a car and I had stopped drinking by that point and I did smoke cigarettes, but, you know, at least half of my meals were covered by the fact that all of my friends worked as, uh, like servers in restaurants. Right. So. I mean, minimum wage, I don't know what year this was for you, but like I was out of college in like 94, 95. I, minimum wage back then was... Mm $3.35. Right. And I mean, I was 900 bucks a month. I was uh, 28 years old. What were you doing for a living though at that point? Uh, I was working in a shop because, uh, you know, I was working at a magazine store because I, um, I had experimented with, you know, I'd always gone back and forth between wanting to, Go straight, get straight, get normal. What does that mean, get normal? Well, I was presented with a worldview that was pretty binary when I was growing up, like I think a lot of people were. Um, 
you wanted to be a middle-class person and you wanted hopefully to be an upper middle-class person. None of us imagined that we would get rich. That just wasn't a thing that you aspired to do in the, you know, when you were in high school in the early eighties, because how did you, how does one get rich? I mean, rich people are rich right. already right. <laughs> and they stay rich. You can maybe marry somebody who's rich, but that's very unlikely. They tend to marry one another. And so what you, what you could aspire to do was move up within the middle class. And if you were lower middle class, you could move up to middle class. And if you were middle class, you could move up to upper middle class. Right. And if you were upper middle class, you could move up into a higher level of upper middle class. Like those were the options. Could you only do it once though? Like could you only do, make that kind of shift one time in a lifetime? I mean, yeah, it's kind of a lifetime effort. <laughs> because there wasn't like there wasn't this cult of entrepreneurship because there wasn't I mean, the internet has been a gold rush. And it has enabled people who, you know, come from all walks of life, but typically not, actually. It's enabled rich kids to get richer, but it's enabled, you know, there has been quite a bit of social mobility. But what it has mostly done is, is introduced this idea that it's, it's, it's fed this meritocracy notion, this American meritocracy notion, but the goal is no longer to move off of the farm and to the city. The goal is to become spectacularly wealthy so that you are like you become a superhuman kind of person because of your extraordinary wealth. And that just wasn't, if you wanted to make a, I mean, and that the thing is when I was a kid, when I was in high school, even, even the venture capitalists didn't exist really. There were stockbrokers. Right, you got to make a bank loan. Yeah, there were bankers, and you could get a job in a bank and maybe work your way up to manager of a bank. But how did you become an owner of a bank? Your father had to own a bank. You couldn't just... Like this whole notion of the financial sector being a thing where they were going to take 7%. These guys that just moved money around we're going to take 7% off of every transaction just because they decided they could. And the people who were dealing in billions of dollars, you know, were, uh, I mean, agreed to it. And because a lot of them were also taking uh, percentages off of everybody else. And so all of a sudden these enormous sums of money that were, that were uh, being traded Every person along the way, there were all these brand new jobs where it was like, my job is to stand in between <laughs> this enormous amount of money going from here to there. And because I'm standing in between it and perform some moving function, it touches my hands as it goes by. <laughs> uh, I take a percentage of it. And as those sums of money get larger and larger, like the what seems an insignificant percent like 0.01% of this transaction is still $100 million. Yeah. And uh, those people didn't exist in 1980. I mean, that is an invention of the late 80s. 
And so nobody in my school, myself included, imagined that we would be, uh, there wasn't even the possibility of being spectacularly rich. And so what we wanted to do was be upper middle class. And the, and the options to do that were somewhat limited. You could be a doctor, right? which fully eight out of my 10 best friends in high school decided to do. Wow. Did they make eight, it? Eight of them are doctors. Wow. And two of them are not. Um, one of them became a computer guy. Yeah. And one of them married a rich girl. Uh, eight of them. And by and, and in those eight, there are uh, like five guys and four gals and they're all doctors because that was just what you that was the best job you could imagine having right nobody went into banking um or you could be a lawyer and lawyer was the equivalent of a doctor except a lawyer seemed to have a lawyer seemed to be something that you would do if you had more imagination a doctor <laughs> that was, was the creative one <laughs> yeah and a doctor right. was something you did if you liked things to be precise and and uh if you were a kind of a good at science or a specialist you were a doctor and if you were good at english or good with words you were a lawyer there were very few people that were i mean we all imagined that we were writers but what were you going to do go go to paris in the 20s it was too late for that it was already the 80s and writers mostly were kids that grew up in suburban new york and had issues with their mother um and so I was of of all my friends was the was the total outlier in that I did not become either a doctor or a lawyer and mostly those decisions were that decision was made by my failure rather than by a pos, by positive choice so until I was a, until I was a senior in high school I still imagined somehow I was going to go to Yale I wasn't sure how, but I just figured it would happen. And then when I graduated last in my class, I still kind of felt like maybe that was its, enough of its own accomplishment that at the graduation ceremony, somebody was going to walk up to me and, and, uh, and tortoise shell glasses and say, you know what? We've been watching you and we'd like you to come to you. Right. But, we but know. that didn't happen. <laughs> right. yeah. We, we know so, the grades don't quite put you there, but you've earned it. You've earned it. Right. Because graduating last in your class uh, is enough. I mean, that took a lot of work. <laughs> right. You and don't actually get... It does take work. It took a lot of work. I bet. Uh, but that was not to be. And so, honestly, I didn't have a plan B. I, didn't, I hadn't applied to any colleges. I'm not sure what I thought was going to happen. I, I, I didn't plan to not go to college. Yeah. I planned to go to Yale. Uh, and I never applied to Yale. I just figured it would happen. And my folks were, my folks were, their energy was so focused on just getting me to graduate from high school that, I think they had a better understanding of the fact that my 1.2 GPA cumulative wasn't going to get me 
into college and they didn't know what, you know, they were very worried. As you can imagine, I wasn't, I was anxious, but I, I was anxious because people were bothering me all the time, but I wasn't worried. I knew that I was, that something was going to happen and I would end up being a lawyer. And it was only when I didn't, you know, when, when all my friends went away to college and I didn't that, um, I mean, even then I, it, I didn't care I, I, because I had, they were all leaving for college in September and I left to travel around America in July. So by the time they all went to college, I was all, I was already, already out fr- there. I was already free. I was in the world. Um, but how was it that you weren't worried about that? I mean, maybe, you know, you, you said earlier that like, this is sort of the expectation or the precedent set by the family, the influence of the family. Like it was never a question that if, if I was going to go to college, that was never, that wasn't like, do you think you're going to go to college? It was always pick, pick a school, you know, which one will you get into? And then of that subset, pick the, pick the right one. Right. Well, and that's the thing with me. It was not, it wasn't a question either. I knew I was going to go to college and, and it was so not a question that I didn't really even feel like I had to um, take any measures to ensure that I got into college. I just knew that I would. And, and, and in the end, I was right. Um, and that's the weird, you know, that's the weird kind of thing about, uh, about middle-class sort of arrogance, middle-class privilege. Like I knew that eventually I would get into college and I didn't really ever do anything. I, uh, I was, so I went and I traveled around the country and I got back to Alaska in the spring of the following year. And all my friends were in the middle of their freshman years of college. And I was, I wasn't even ambitious enough to work as a drug dealer. Like I felt like selling pot was beneath my dignity. Mm. Um, I just wanted to smoke pot <laughs> at that point. And I didn't want to pay for pot. That was also beneath my dignity. And so I just did that thing that, that thousands, the generations of loafers have done, which is I just hung around pot dealers and was there, (laughs) was there like funny friend, right? So I imagined that I was paying for my pot by being fun to be around. Like a court jester. And I don't know whether uh, all the pot dealers that I hung around shared that feeling or whether they uh, were. I, I think that pot dealers typically keep 10% of their pot earmarked for moochers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the pot dealers were my friends. We did hang out when we weren't smoking pot, but we were smoking pot most of the time. And what did I do? I didn't provide any service. It's not like I was protection or I just sort of was, I was just funny. It's the secret talent of being funny. People want you around, particularly when they're stoned. Every group of stone people wants a funny person there. Uh, And then I got a phone call 
at my mom's house where I was living in the basement, much to her consternation. And it was my guidance counselor from high school. I hadn't talked to her in a, in a year. And she said, there's a college called Gonzaga in Spokane, Washington. And they have a program for underachieving students. That's called the New Start program. And they are seeking, they've put the word out to guidance counselors across the West, seeking students that meet this strange set of qualifications, which is total lack of academic performance and, um, but high test scores and high aptitude. And she said, you know, I'm calling you out of the blue because you are the, you know, you're the one that I would submit to this program, but you, you haven't been in high school in a year, but I'm sort of just acting independently here. And I was like, huh? Hmm. Yeah, I guess never really heard of Gonzaga. Not so sure. And my mom, I think I told my mom about it at dinner and she was like, you will fucking go to that. <laughs> and she said, you will cut your hair and go. And I said, what? How long was your hair at this point? It was long. Yeah. She was like, and I said, you can't make me cut my hair. This isn't the sixties. Like this is, this is ridiculous. Like this is a cliche. Cut your hair. And she pretty sure stood up and grabbed me by the shirt and said you will cut your fucking hair and you will go to this meeting with this college person and you will get into this college you will not miss this opportunity because it this is a completely unique opportunity this never happens and if you get away with this it will i i i almost will be even more furious that you somehow managed to do this, but you will go. And so I, and so what she Your said mom was, sounds great, by the way, no, she's awful. What she said was, if you, she said, if you do not cut your hair, if you do not today go to the barber and cut your hair into a conservative hairstyle, you will move out of my house today. And I said, and she was not given to idle threats of that sort. And I was like, you will make me move out if I don't cut my hair? And she said, you are 18 and you will go on your own. If you, if you think that you're going to waltz into this college interview with hair down in the middle of your back and, and like, if there's, it, it, even if they would let you in, I want there to be some consequences. <laughs> you will cut your hair or you like, that was your punishment for squeaking in this way or somehow so i cut my hair like and i was mad but i did it and i went to this interview and there and it was with a there was a priest there i guess and another guy and they were like you are really remarkable this grade point average is exceptionally low and uh but your test scores are great and your aptitude seems great you know what do you think you want to go to college and i was like sure man i mean what ifs <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure that I'm sure that I put on a, you know, I put on a brave face at that point. It was like, why? Yes, I want to be an American. And I got into Gonzaga 
And I was on double secret probation. I had to go to all the, you know, I was part of this program, this special program. So, uh, so I had to meet their requirements in order to stay enrolled. It was a big experiment on their part. And if they, um, you know, and they were going to be monitoring me very closely. And if I failed, then the program would fail and that would be the end of it. And, and, the fact is, I never met another kid at Gonzaga that was in the New Start program. I have no idea how extensive it was, how many people uh, were admitted. But once I got into college and realized, I remember the, I remember having this revelation, like the second or third day of class, where I actually, I had a, I had a history professor at Gonzaga who had a belt buckle that was a peace sign. <laughs> and he was really into Hannah Arendt and he was like a uh, he was a pretty hip guy and I remember talking to him after class and saying so let me get this straight the class is that we read these books and then write about them write a report about them and he said yeah and I said so there's no like daily homework assignment there's no you don't have to there's no multiple choice tests there's no textbook he was like no it's a college you're in college now it's a college class i said so you give us five to ten books and we read them on our own time and then class time is spent sitting around with our feet up on a chair (laughs) discussing them like talking about them, and then we just write a report. And he was like, that's right. That's what college is. And I was like, holy shit. This is fucking fantastic. Yeah, why didn't, why didn't I try to get into this place? Yeah, why, wasn't, why isn't all school like this? Because that was what I, I mean, I love that. that. That wasn't hard. What was hard was assignments and tests and textbooks and i mean that was just hard because it was so dull so i aced college i mean I, once i was in college i just was having the time of my life i was like oh you know can you give me twice as many books to read and twice as many reports to write because this is fucking hilarious <laughs> so i was immediately <laughs> off of uh, you know i proved to the gonzaga people the wisdom of their program or i mean and again i never heard about new start again but but uh you know, I was their shining example until I started being a discipline problem, which I was right away. So academically, I was not a problem. But discipline, like being disruptive in class, or more like the fights in your dorm room with the they had thing, some or? they had some rule where they were like, you know, if you get if you get into an incident in the dorm, you get a demerit, and when you have, uh three demerits you have to have a meeting with your ra and if you get six demerits then you are kicked out of the dorms and before parents weekend was over like before the first (laughs) before class had begun i had something like 14 demerits my god because i just couldn't live with other people what were you getting them for though what else? I mean, you know, I'm I was loud. Like, what would, what was, would be justify getting a demerit though? Maybe they were just giving them out too easily. 
I mean, I lived on the fourth floor of a dorm called Desmet, um, at Gonzaga and, you know, uh, I got a demerit for toilet papering the trees off of the fourth floor balcony <laughs> on within an hour of being at the what school. what made you want to do this because that was hilarious it was wonderful like, i mean it would have been pretty funny to see that it's great because if you know to but did to, you think like did you think you wouldn't get caught or did you think i don't care if i get caught i w- thought i would be celebrated because uh because it was so much better because there were all the parents there, everybody was walking around, it was the big time, and then all of a sudden these, you know, five-story elm trees were just billowing with toilet paper. Fucking hilarious. But of course, I was standing on the fourth floor <laughs> balcony, so it was, I was easily visible uh, all the way across campus. Right. And then, Did someone rat you out, or do you think you oh, were no, just... no, I think somebody just came and knocked on my door and was like, did you do that? And I was like, uh, der, okay, yes, I guess. And they were like, that's bad. <laughs> And then I, so then I, there was a kid across the hall that had some golf clubs. I had never played golf. I was like, show me how to play golf. They were like, well, you know, there's no course around here. And I was like, that's fine. We can just do it off the balcony. So we started hitting golf balls off the balcony. And that apparently was very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Again, because the school was full of people and this, this, we had only just begun. Um, and so I didn't belong. I was not a domesticated animal. Right, right. I probably belonged in the army or in uh, some kind of, I belonged cutting trail in the national parks, but I was like more or less autonomous in, in, um, in a giant building full of other young men. And I had as my model, some combination of Hunter S Thompson and, John Belushi. <laughs> and it was just like they couldn't they couldn't keep the they, they couldn't keep the demerit forms st- stocked in the office because I just didn't get I didn't um I did not perceive it to be my job to be the quiet mouse. I was the I I thought that my job was to be the loud mouse, the fun mouse. Well, there's and, something uh, about that, though, that like that doesn't surprise me about you. But the thing that kept me from really being like I was not a troublemaker. I was just really bored. And when I was young in class, it, none of it was interesting. None of it held my interest. None of it w- felt challenging. There was a lot of when we went to school. I mean, I'm assuming this is the same nationally. But in my experiences, a lot of it was more memorization than anything else. So it was like, you need to learn this. And by learn it, it meant memorize it. So you can just, you know, take the test, especially. Well, yeah, that's in, why I, that's why I had a, a 1.2 G, GPA. Right. I just did. I just wouldn't do those things. Yeah. I, I, I hated it too. But my response to that when I was younger was to just, I would get bored. I would just sort of talk in class. I would talk or I would, you know, I'd be drawing things on, you know, on paper or on the desk or whatever, and I would get in trouble. I would get sent to the office for that or sent in the hall. They used to do that a lot. I would be sent out into the hall until I could quiet down and stop, right, ta- and stop talking. Yeah. I was always talking. So they would bring me back in when I guess they thought I'd had enough and I would have to do whatever work I missed. And 
eventually I realized that it was, you know, that it was better to just be quiet when I was bored because then I wouldn't have this makeup work to do. But I, I never really was willing to take the burden of being the kid that does the thing that they then get in a lot of trouble for getting to merits or getting almost kicked out of a thing or getting suspended. I don't, and the thing is like, I never had, like my parents weren't abusive. They didn't threaten me with things like that. It was, I was never, it wasn't like, Oh man, if I do this, I'm going to be in so much trouble at home too. It was, there was something in me that compa- that I would take it just to the line of where I thought if I do that thing, I, I, I think it's because I knew I would get caught and I was too scared of getting caught, even though I guess the repercussions would have probably not been that bad. Just the idea of like doing something that would be well, bad enough. Well, that's what enough. you discover. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, I, I, I've, I've told that story before, but the, the, the revelation to me came at the end of third grade um, when I realized that it wasn't that I realized that the, that the punishment wasn't that they, that they couldn't really do anything to you. That wasn't the, that wasn't the moment of disillusionment when I was, when I was little up until third grade, I was very much interested in pleasing the teacher and pleasing the grownups. And I was still like precocious and loud and disruptive, but I wanted to please the grownups. And if I was displeasing the grownups, it just caused me, uh, you know, personal pain. I wanted to be good. I wanted to be their star pupil. And so in third grade, just as in second grade, just as in first grade, I was like the star pupil the whole year. And at the end of the year, I had this sort of, profound realization that none of, none of it had mattered. It was, it all reset to zero. And I graduated from the third grade, just like, just exactly the same as the kid who struggled all year, who didn't know how to do anything, who was, you know, mean. Yeah. And, uh, and lame. He graduated from third grade and I graduated from third grade and we both <laughs> went into fourth grade exactly the same. Right. Because the fourth grade teacher <laughs> didn't know us. And I had, you had the presence of mind to, to put that together. Going I understood into fourth that. Grade. I understood that at the end of third grade because of this elaborate scheme that my third grade teacher used where instead of grades, he used money and so we were collect we kept bank books throughout all of third grade and it, and so if you did really well on a paper he would give you 20 cents or 30 cents and you would write that amount in your bank book and then at the end of the month he would he had um, he had auctions where he would auction off toys with the money that you had made in the bank book and because of my relationship to money it was already pretty sophisticated at third grade I didn't want to bid on any of these toys. I just wanted to collect the money. Right. And he kept trying to entice me every month. He would buy exciting toys and there would be these amazing things to bid on. And I just wouldn't bid. I just kept the money and nobody's, he didn't understand. And nobody, none of the adults in the school or in my house understood that I understood what money was. And that these toys were for kids. And that I was collecting money in my bank book. 
that was real. Right. And so we got to the end of the year and I had never bid on anything. And there was a big, big auction with amazing toys at the end of the year. And I didn't bid on anything. And it was, and it was to the consternation of all these people. They were like, what is the matter with you? Why don't you want to any of these great toys? And I was just, and I don't, I wasn't very good at explaining myself, but it shouldn't have needed explanation. It was fucking obvious. I had a hundred bucks or more right, right. in my bank book, which I had, which I, not only had saved, but I had aced every assignment and test. I had made the absolute maximum amount of money that you could have under this system. And so the last day of school, he said, well, you know, you're my prize student. And so I'm going to take you out to ice cream at Farrell's ice cream parlor. And you can get the big, you can get the pig's trough, the big, big ice cream. <laughs> The the pig's trough? The pig's trough, which is like 25 scoops of ice cream. And if you eat the whole thing, you get a ribbon or something. <laughs> and, he's, and I was like, okay, that's, the, that's my reward. I understand that. And he said, and the other teacher from the other third grade class who did not have this bank book system, but who had just was a normal teacher and had just had a normal class, she's going to bring her prize student. Uh, a, a little girl and the four of us are going to go out and get ice cream together. And I was like, okay, that I'm fine with that. Like, I love the idea. And we went to Farrell's together. And I, the thing is I worshiped this teacher, Mr. Reynolds. Mm -hmm. We got ice cream. We ate this enormous pile of ice cream and it made us all sick. And then the school year was over and I went home and it was only about a week into the summer when I realized that nobody was going to give me my money. That it had been pretend money. Yeah. And that the reward was this ice cream, which I had to share with a kid that had earned no money. And all of the kids in my class had, who had bought, who had like wasted their money throughout the year buying little model trucks and toys and yeah. shit in these auctions right that all of those kids had profited at least in owning this garbage but that i had you know i had what at the time was an enormous amount of money in this bank book and it was erased hmm. uh and i've told that story since many times and i've told it to my mom and she says, you know, if only I had known, I would have given you the hundred and twenty dollars. It's what it wouldn't have been that much money relative to the message of betrayal that I learned, mm. which was and it didn't take me long to to understand that grades were exactly this. They were fake money that that bought nothing. They were fake money and no one was ever going to give you the money um, because if they could, if, you know, if Mr. Reynolds could do that to me with his debt to me, which was a hundred and hundred plus dollars, like grades were just a, were, you know, if you believed in grades, you were even more of a, of a, right. of a dummy. Right. And so I, w I went into fourth grade and, you know, and I had been the star of the school. Like I was the, I was fucking king. And I walked into fourth grade and sat down at my desk and was just like, 
what? What are you going to do? Give me a grade? Are you going to give me a grade if I do this? You were dangerous and by this point. My fourth grade teacher was was dumb. She it was uh, she was she had been a librarian, and this was her first year of teaching. And, you know, over the years, like you know, which ones of your teachers were dumb, right. And which ones were smart. And Mr. Reynolds was very smart, but not quite smart enough to understand what he had done. And uh, my fourth grade teacher was the dumbest of all the teachers that I ever had, and. So, you know, I walked in and sat down and was just like, what was so, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to knock myself out here to get this worksheet done. And what, what are you going to do? You're going to give me a grade. Yeah. And what is that? And she was ill-equipped to deal with. How old, how, how old were you? It was first day of fourth grade. My gosh. And uh, and from that moment, I never really did any work in school that didn't personally interest me again, all the way to the end of high school. So if there was a and book you never or, had to repeat a grade or anything like that. No, they couldn't do that to me. I mean, I why I, not? Why I knew kids that had to repeat. That was my biggest fear in school. It's like. <gasps> held back oh my god I, <laughs> well because my iowa test scores were in the 99th percentile right. in every category so every time we would take the iowa basic tests and they would you know they would bring the test back there would be all these like strange adults at the school for a day or two and they would stand in the back of the class and and point at me and whisper and i would get these i would get taken out of class for these special meetings and everybody was so proud of me and my folks were so proud of me and you know, and and uh, I was like, for those for those moments, like, you know, a star. And so, the fact that I didn't do any of the work, there there was this other there was this other group of people that never ever ever would have let me be held back. And that was true in high school. I shouldn't have graduated from high school. I didn't have enough credits. Um, I had failed too many classes and wow. should have been held back. But I was also a national merit scholar. So they're, you know, it they just didn't know what to do with you. Yeah, it would have been too embarrassing to. Um, they just would have had to a answer too many questions, and it was just easier to say like, to just push the problem down the line and say, he's going to, he's going to uh, come up against an insurmountable problem one day. And it's it's just going to have to happen somewhere down the line because, you know, they were holding people back right and left that they thought couldn't, you know, they were holding people back that they thought were never going to make it. And, and they just, this was the beginning for them. This was, you know, this was the first indignity of many. Right. Um, and they were holding people <laughs> back that they were going to, you know, try and set on the right path and, and set them to summer school and make them get serious and take take it seriously i mean there did you ever you, have to do summer school or anything like repeated class uh there i did go to summer school one year um because they could tell that i wasn't on the path to graduate in 10th grade i had already failed enough classes that i that it, i was i was in danger and then in a, by 11th grade i had failed enough classes that it was not i wasn't going to be able to graduate if i, I didn't go to summer school um and so I went to summer school and took 
you know, I don't know if you've ever been to summer school, but oh, it's yeah. like, you know, it's some BB stacking. And it was actually fun. It was great. It was something to, I liked summer school quite a bit. I mean, the problem was I liked school. I liked going to school. I liked reading. I liked, you know, the being around kids. I liked having something to do. So I didn't mind summer school. I thought it was fun. But then I immediately started failing classes again in my senior year. And by the end of the first quarter, it was like, oh, shit, he's not going to graduate. And kept and, and they gave me work credit for a job I had. They tried a lot of different, um, the, a lot of ways to save face where it was like, no, 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 he's, he can do it. And then, you know, I got kicked out of AP history um, for cheating. Hmm. Which was that the you know I was I had missed a test and was out in the hall taking the test and and had the you know had some answers in tucked in a book and I was looking down looking down at the book that was down in the rack next to the desk and the teacher came around the corner and saw me and you know was so disappointed in me mm. and it was disappointing I wasn't a cheater I was did not typically cheat but it was one of those like and it's coming to the end of the year and Jesus Christ, they're so mad at me about all the classes I'm failing. And so I got an F in that class, but, but, but they gave me the credits. If you look at my transcript, it's a, it's, it's pretty amazing. The, um, the giant Swiss cheese holes, uh, that are in it. If I mean, you know, it can, I can tell you a couple of different stories by looking at the transcript where it's just like, yeah, they just, they, they had, uh, they just didn't want to deal. They didn't want to deal. And, and they figured having me stick around for another year was worse for everybody. Would you do anything different if you knew what, maybe not the sum total of what you know now, but looking back on the way things were in college and, everything else would you go back and change it would you do something different than you done yeah oh absolutely absolutely the the effort the energy i expended in not doing work was so much greater than the effort it would have required to just do some work like i could have done all the homework assignments that they asked and it wouldn't have been that hard and i would have gotten good grades and I would have just I would have been fine but somehow that was my stand and that was the and that was my pride you know uh, and so I fought I fought all grown ups it was a war yeah. against all grown ups my entire life um, and it was a and it was a passive war I never I never stood toe to toe with anybody and said fuck you I'm not going to do it when, when they would have those meetings and sit me down in the office and everybody was there and my parents were called and, and they would say, we need you to do your work. I would say, yes, absolutely. I will do my work starting today. And then I wouldn't. And they would have another just, meeting. Just to antagonize? Just to be well, no, difficult? Because, or? No, it was, it's just as you say, the work was insultingly stupid and boring. The idea that I had to fill out a multiple choice sheet or do worksheets was just like so, it was just so lame. Yeah. And so I couldn't, 
I couldn't keep my attention. I couldn't, I could not believe it, frankly, you know, I mean, I wanted to sit with the teacher and talk about the lesson. I, I had done all the reading. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't fill out the forms. I still can't. And I couldn't take the multiple. And, I, you know, I did well on tests that I, that I deigned to, to take. Your, but, your grace with your, you know, with your time. I mean, the thing is that the only reason I graduated from high school at all or passed any class was that I could take a test because I never handed in a single assignment. And um, it was, uh, you know, it was exhausting. And I lived under a, a cloud of constant, I was constantly anxious and, and um, you know, there was a pit in my stomach my whole childhood. But, and, I, and, and if I could go back, and, and the thing is, that's what they said. My dad used to say to me all the time, he was like, you don't have to, you don't have to it's not that serious, it's... We know that the assignments are stupid. We know it's a stupid game. Just do it. Just just do them. He would his 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 saying was just do the minimum. Just do the minimum that they expect of you. Just get C's. We don't care. Just enough that we don't have to get called into these parent teacher meetings and that we don't that there aren't that there's not this constant like garbage. Just do the minimum. He would say over and over, do the minimum, just do the minimum. That's all we ask. It's nothing, it w- it's not hard. It's so much easier than what you're doing. And I would say, I will, I will. You're right. I understand and I will. And then I wouldn't. Do you feel like like the they were just nice to you because they saw that you were really smart? That not just based on your test scores, but like, or do you think that, they just bought into the act or what? I mean, no, it's the same as now, right? There are a lot of people that find me very likable and interesting. And there are a lot of people that find me very annoying and exasperating. Yeah. And that was true in high school too. There were, uh, you know, the cool teachers that had mustaches and that wore jeans all thought I was great and was their acolyte and their pal and they would whisper in my ear, like, oh, this is bullshit. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. And then the teachers that wore their hair in really tight buns and the teachers that, you know, that wore gray slacks, uh, they felt like I was disruptive and I needed to go to military school. Mm-hmm. And that was fun for me, too. The the idea that I could go into a high school, a, a made, you know, a, a very big, I mean, high school had 3,000 kids. It was a huge school. And I could go into that institution and disrupt it that much so that I was pitting teachers against each other. And some teachers were, you know, they would have big shouting matches in the, in the teacher's lounge. Some teachers defending me saying that, <laughs> I, that, you know, they didn't understand me and that I just needed to be encouraged. And other teachers saying that they'd given me every opportunity and I should be expelled. And I was expelled. I was expelled Multiple times I got back in because I could go to a meeting. I could go to the the meeting with the principal and the guidance counselors and sit at the table and say, I've learned my ways. I'm contrite. I'll, I promise not to. I had no idea that they would let, let, let you back in if you were expelled. Like I thought that was a, you were expelled and you were just out. Well, right. But that's because most people that get expelled take their lumps you know they they don't 
perceive themselves to have the power to challenge it. You know, that's the expulsion works because it usually is a tool that's used against people that are already socially struggling, economically struggling, intellectually struggling, and they get expelled and they, and they go quietly off to the, uh, the remedial high school. But I just appealed. And then was really good at the appeals process. You know, I, I recognize that I am, I, this, I was exasperating. It's probably exasperating for some people to listen to this story because fucking, ugh. Why? Because like they worked hard and. Oh, I mean, my, my high school friends are infuriated. I, 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 they were, they've been infuriated by me their whole lives because yeah, they worked their asses off. They went to Ivy league schools and they have, they are doing the upper middle class thing that they were supposed to do. They're doctors now. And I was supposed to get my comeuppance somewhere along the line. And I, and I did, I got plenty of comeuppance, but I mean, my high school girlfriend wrote me a letter one time when we were adults I was in my 30s. She was like, why do you get to keep doing whatever you want? (laughs) Like, why? It just doesn't seem right. But don't you feel like, uh, like, like eventually something's going to catch up with you? Like, isn't that, is that not a worry? No, 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 no. It always did. It's, it's, it's always caught up with me. I mean, you know, it was, high school was a lot harder on me than it was on her. And she did the work and she did what they asked. And it looked at the time like I wasn't doing anything, but you know, it was awful for me. And whether or not that was self-inflicted, it was still hard. And it was, you know, it's not like, a, it's not like my life has been easy. It's No, it, it definitely doesn't seem like it has, but like you've chosen a very difficult path i think not not only because only because in the world that i was growing up in it was so binary like we like we said at the beginning of the program like it would have been very easy i think i mean if mr reynolds had given me that 120 dollars, who knows who knows what i would have been like in fourth grade who knows what you know, that may have been a turning point. I don't know. I, I, I think of it as, as one, but I don't, I don't honestly know where, where, when the last opportunity for me to succeed within the, within a conformist framework was, you know, where, I mean, I definitely look at my grade, my report cards in third grade where I have a plus in every category and my report cards in fourth grade mm-hmm. where I have S minus or whatever <laughs> right. in every category. Right. As satisfactory for those growing up in Canada <laughs> and, uh, or N for not satisfactory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you go, well, what the fuck happened here? And I can tell you exactly what happened. You know, it wasn't like, I mean, my folks had already been divorced for many years. There was no trauma 
that happened in the summer between third and fourth grade. It was this, it was what happened in third grade. What happened the last day of third grade? Now, at some point along the way, I imagine it would have been, it would have been a lot easier for, for, like if, this is the thing, we always try to correct the mistakes that our parents made. And my parents were trying to correct the mistakes that their parents had made because their parents hit them with, uh, Aspen branches and made them sit in cold bathtubs and left them to get a pack of cigarettes and never came back. I mean, their parents were awful. Wow. So they were trying to not do that. When I think about the mistakes that my parents made, I'm like, at at some point, wouldn't you just have said school, like Anchorage public school isn't working for this kid. And to continue to, push him back into this uh, this Play-Doh squeezer and say, you will come out the other side of this and there's one way there's one way to succeed which is to get good grades in this school and everything after that is determined by your ability to do that and you know, after a couple of years of like, well, I'm getting D's and F's and everything you're trying isn't working. What else do you do? You, you think of a different thing and nobody did because they because it hadn't occurred to any of them. It hadn't occurred to anybody in the school. It didn't occur to my parents, any of, my, any of the adults in Anchorage in 1982, none of them imagined that there was an alternative. Mm. And my mom eventually did. And she got a bunch of applications to private schools, which she then required that I fill out. And I did a terrible job of filling them out, as you can imagine, because they were all (laughs) private schools predicated on the concept that what I needed was discipline. And that was the thing that they said over and over, that they said to each other and that they would say to me, like, you need to go to military school, you need to get discipline, you need discipline. And I do. And I did, but, but somehow they never followed through on it. Nobody ever sent me to military school. And I'm not sure whether, whether if I had been subjected to an environment of like pure discipline, whether I would have um, maybe thrived in that environment. I don't know. But I wasn't the first kid to fuck up in school. Oh, wow. Of course not. But. But I didn't want to drop out because I, I wasn't a dropout, right? I, I still believed I was going to be in the middle class and I believed, I guess, that I was going to be a lawyer. I just, um, in the short term, wasn't going to dance their, the, the little dance. Right. And in the, in the, In the big term, in the long term, I figured out a way to dance the big dance. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a I'm a member of society. Yeah, I didn't end up right. Like you're 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 in prison. Right, you're not in prison. You're not doing terrible things. You're not a yeah, bird. I'm, you're I'm, not a burden on society in any way. I'm not even. Uh, I'm not even terrible. Really, <laughs> that's right. Hardly. 
you know, like I'm, you, it, you might even say that I was thriving. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but it, uh, between the ages of 15 and 35, I was, I was still always seeking a way, seeking a, a, a parallel path. And, you know, I, and it would have been a lot easier. I guess what I did, I guess what I would say to myself is, I mean, I honestly don't know what I could have said to myself. Like if you could go back now to whether it's the fourth grade thing or, or high school or college, like, would you, would you, would you have a lesson to say to yourself in, on this subject to, if you could go back in time? If I went back and was confronted with my 12-year-old self and was like, listen, 12-year-old self, here's the deal. I remember enough about my 12-year-old self to know that 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 boy would listen to me and go, okay, sure, whatever, yeah, I'll do what you say. Right. You know that you at 12 would say the same thing to you at 40-something then that that you said to anyone else who was 40-something when you were that age. You don't think you could like scare your, like you remember the scared straight thing where you take the kids to the prison and the prisoners come out and tell you all the horror story. Like you couldn't have scared yourself in that way? No, no. I wouldn't have listened to myself any more than I listened to my dad or my mom. If I could go back and inhabit the body of my 12-year-old self with the knowledge that I have as a person in his mid-40s, I would do a spectacular fucking head job on everybody god i don't want to even imagine i would (laughs) i i would be a fucking damien oh my god but but the 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 kid that i was you know and the and the, the fact is i see this behavior in adults all the time too which is and it's the problem of passivity right i was extremely passive about confrontation and and i see i see adults who are extremely passive in, in in daily life and it and you make the mistake of thinking that passivity is the path of least resistance because all you are doing is looking down at the floor and agreeing with what everybody says mm-hmm. and you're just hoping and waiting that this will get done that this meeting will be over that they will stop talking to you. And so it just seems like the, the smart choice to just agree and stare at the floor and give as little, you know, just give monosyllabic answers in the hopes that you can survive this encounter. And what you you know, what you never realize is that that passivity is just sowing the seeds of future difficulty. Right. And that a, a confrontation, as difficult as it is, as, as uncomfortable and awkward as it is, will spare you future discomfort because you get it out. You, say, you look people in the eye and you say, I mean, if I had looked everybody in the eye my freshman year and said, fuck you. <laughs> This work is stupid. Right. You, uh, you adults are untrustworthy. I do not feel like anyone in this room has my best interests or knows me at all. 
and the world that you imagine is the actual world is not, you are pathetic, all of you. Your ambitions are pathetic. I do not respect you. They would have pulled me out of school and I would be, I don't know what, I mean, I don't know what would have happened. That no, no teacher or guidance counselor would ever sit there, no principal would, would sit there with a ninth grader that's just like, I'm not going to do the work in this school because it's idiotic. And the fact that you are a principal of a high school is not impressive to me. They're not going to take that. No way. Um, so, but that would have forced the issue. Something would have happened. I would have done, I would have gone somewhere. But instead I stared at the floor and said, yes, okay, I'll do what you say. Mm. And it's it still amazes me that, that no one, I mean, and they all understood that what I was saying was I don't respect you and that this is idiotic. But it was enough of a, you know, it was enough of a charade that they could keep, um, they could just sort of put me back in there and say, well, let's just see what happens next. I mean, you know, four years is a long time yeah. to keep ex- doing that same experiment. But I, honestly, I don't know. I don't know what you would have done with somebody like me. And I'm just, I have a child and I'm just hoping that when she gets to be a teenager, it's clearer what she needs than it was when I was a teenager. It was unclear what I needed. And uh, I hope that she's more comprehensible. <laughs> 